0: pray with me. Father, we come to you as we enter into uh, this time of worship, specifically in the time when we preach your word. I pray that you would clear our minds and ease our hearts in such a way to where we can observe and take in the truths that you have for us. And I beg you, Father, at this time that you would protect the ears of these people from whatever is untrue that may be coming out of my mouth and that you would override me and that you would only reveal what is true and what is scriptural and what is from your word. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in the hearts of the people here in a way uh, that no preacher could and that you would show them Jesus and that you would make them fall in love with their king who died for them. And in his name alone we pray, amen. All right, so friends, we're continuing in our series through the book of Acts, and we're pushing the whole book from beginning to end. And currently, we're at the second half of chapter 15, which has a very similar message to the first half of chapter 15 that we studied last week, and it's all about Christian unity. All right, let me just recap briefly so we remember the context of what's kind of happening here in Acts chapter 15. Remember last Sunday we saw that there's a big argument that happened between two groups of people in the early church, between the circumcised Jewish Christians and the uncirc- uncircumcised non-Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians, okay? The circumcised Jewish Christians, let's call these guys the circumcision group, they came to Paul and Barnabas' church in Antioch, which had a lot of uncircumcised non-Jewish Christians in it, and these guys were telling these guys, That in order for these guys to be saved, they have to not only receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, but they also have to get circumcised. And these guys were like, uh, ouch, no. We're not going to do that. And they were right. They didn't need to do that. The Bible is actually pretty clear that if you go around adding requirements for salvation on top of what Jesus Christ already did for you on the cross, that destroys the gospel. That destroys Christianity. Jesus was pretty clear, you're saved by grace alone. You're saved through what he did for you on the cross alone. You can't add to that. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's how sins are forgiven. That's how you're washed clean. And Paul and Barnabas knew that. They had to protect the purity of the gospel. So what do they do? Well, it would have been much easier if they just told these people to leave, right? Just get your legalistic faces out of here. We're done with you. Go. But instead, they took a much more complicated route. We saw last week, they set up this big meeting with tons of other pastors in this place called Jerusalem to find a solution. But why do all that? Why not just tell them to leave? Because they knew that if they just simply told these people to leave, they might have succeeded to protect gospel purity, but they would have destroyed gospel unity. It would have caused church infighting, all kinds of stuff. So, they had a complicated order, right? They had to somehow find a way to protect gospel purity without destroying gospel unity. And falling into either extremes hurt people. Have you ever been a part of a church that added requirements for your salvation, that added requirements for your Forgiveness more than what Jesus did on the cross for you. Remember how suffocating that was? Remember how tiring that was? But have you also experienced hurt and pain from church infighting? From people just being unreasonable in their disposition, causing unnecessary fights? Remember how tiring that was? How painful that was? You see, you don't want to fall into either extreme. And the early church in Acts chapter 15 had to navigate this difficult tension. And if you, Christian, want to not be a Christian who just mindlessly falls into either or, understanding what God's trying to tell us from this passage is absolutely vital for us to do both well. Okay? Let's get into it. This is the word of God. Take it from Acts chapter 15, verse 22 to 41. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, "'Let us return and visit the brothers in every city "'where we proclaim the word of the Lord "'and see how they are.' "'Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. "'But Paul thought best not to take with them "'one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia "'and had not gone with them to the work. "'And there was sharp disagreement, "'so that they separated from each other. "'Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. "'But Paul chose Silas and departed, "'having been commended by the brothers "'to the grace of the Lord.'" And they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Thus says the Lord. All right. How do we, CCC, how do you, as individual Christians, both protect gospel purity without wrecking gospel unity? Okay, three things in this passage that I want us to see. First, we got to acknowledge the deeper realities of divisive issues. Second, we got to be faithfully creative and humbly sacrificial. Third, got to remain family, although separated institutionally. All right, let's get to it. First point, acknowledge the deeper realities of divisive issues. All right, we're just going to go through the passage. After Paul and Barnabas carefully came up with a solution with this larger group of pastors in Jerusalem, right, elders and, and, and apostles, They wrote down their decision, the passage says, in this letter that's going to be sent out to the churches. That's what verses 22 to 23 says, okay? Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with the following letter. What's in this letter? Well, the first half acknowledges the problem, and the second half presents a solution. Let's talk about how the early church leaders acknowledged the problem first, okay? Okay? They didn't treat it like it was just another academic issue. That's an important thing we see in this passage. Okay, yes. Do you need to know your Bibles in order to then come up with a solution to these issues we find in church today? Did the apostles need to know the relationship between the circumcision in the Old Testament and to the New Testament and how it connects? They needed to know that. It's an academic one. It's a Bible knowledge one. Absolutely. Sure. But they knew that it was deeper than that. It wasn't just an academic issue, it was personal, it was emotional as well. Look at verse twenty four. The letter says Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us, this circumcision group, and troubled you with many words, unsettling your minds. The word troubled there in the Greek, it's a lot heavier than what you see in English. It means to experience an inward dismantling caused by stress. That's what they're experiencing. And the apostles were sensitive to that. They knew that. They acknowledged that. I mean, imagine this. You're an uncircumcised, non-Jewish Christian who's received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you are happy in your faith. You're in church, worshiping God, all is well. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of Christian leaders came to your church saying, you know what? actually you're not really really saved by christ alone to get really really saved you got to get circumcised (laughs) you'd be like what you'd be unsettled too anyone would because all the disadvantages that come with that but beyond the physical angst they might have experienced circumcision this issue also caused a cultural angst why Because circumcision back then was a very specifically Jewish thing. So these non-Jewish Christians must have been asking themselves, how far into the Jewish culture do I have to go to in order to be saved? How much of my own culture, my own identity, must I betray and abandon in order to be Christian? You see, this wasn't just an academic issue. It was a personal one. It was an identity one, an existential one, an emotional one. But it was a personal and emotional one for the Jews as well, for the circumcision group as well. For them, this was more than just a cultural thing. It was a personal thing too. Circumcision was personal for them. It was their identity for so long. It's hard to just shake it off. Some of you may know this, that I wasn't raised in a Christian family. I came from a different religion before I became a Christian and accepted Christ. But even after accepting Christ, and becoming a Christian, some of the laws of that religion, it just still stuck with me. I just couldn't shake it off. It wasn't that easy. For example, I didn't feel the freedom to write in my Bible for like a year after becoming a Christian because the worldview of that religion says that the the scripture itself is holy, right, Uh, and you can't, you know, do things to it. Well, Christianity would say, no, the truth's what's here is holy, but the paper itself and the ink doesn't, you know. But I couldn't shake it off. I just couldn't do it. I still have a hard time putting my babo on the floor until today. <laughs> uh, for the longest time, I felt guilty eating certain meats that I wasn't allowed to eat. I still ate them. I just felt guilty about eating them <laughs> for a long time. Although the Christian worldview gives freedom for that why can't I just shake it off? Because it's embedded in my identity. It, it was so, so much a part of me that although the Bible clearly doesn't hold me to these requirements, my instincts felt like they were betraying God when I did them. Here's my point. When you're talking about hot topic issues in the church, it may not be circumcision today. It may be dietary requirements. It may be baptism. It may be how you do music what instruments do you use tattoos i don't know whatever issues are out there the worst mistake you can do is thinking that they're just academic discussions they're not they're emotional ones they're personal ones they're cultural ones and the early church leaders understood that so they took it seriously they didn't just you know post a mean passive aggressive jab online <laughs> What did they do? They met in a big, serious meeting. They wrote down the details in a letter. They sent two people with Paul and Barnabas to go deliver the letter, verse 22 says. Why two people? Because the Old Testament says that if you want to know that testimony really is true, send them two or more witnesses. They even took the sending process seriously. And then when they got there, they didn't just read the letter and say goodbye. Look at verse 32. The messengers encouraged the brothers with many words. They made sure there's a personal touch to it just to be sensitive to the message, take it seriously. Take how seriously, how deep and personal and powerful these divisive issues may be to some people. Don't just say the Bible says this, you're wrong, see you later. That's a very callous way to treat family. Don't do that. It's the first thing to do, all right? So what's the solution then? We still haven't gotten to the solution, right? That's the way they address the problem, very seriously, very sensitively, very reasonably. But then, in the second half of the letter, they gave us a solution, and the solution is a very interesting one, which leads us to our second point. You've got to be faithfully creative and sacrificially humble, point two. Let's move on to the second part of the letter, verse 28. Here's the big solution, right? They told these Gentile Christians, look, don't get circumcised, okay? If you do that, then you would betray gospel purity. Don't add more requirements to salvation than what Christ did on the cross, Okay, that's that's done. But here are four things that you should do. <laughs> Verse twenty-eight. What are they? Abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. That means that there's like a piece of meat that was put in an idol worship temple. Don't eat that. Avoid blood, meaning don't eat medium rare steaks. Avoid what's been strangled, right? Meat meat from an animal that died because they were strangled, and from sexual immorality. It's a weird list. Okay, now the sexual immorality one, that probably is pretty obvious. Sure, we'll we'll do that. That's commanded in the Bible. But what's up with these other three requirements? Well, as Sam mentioned last week, that these other three requirements are other very important Jewish customs in the Old Testament as well. So here's what the pastors and elders were saying. Look, uncircumcised non-Jewish Christians, we're going to draw the line on circumcision right? That's, you know, we got to tell these circumcised Jewish Christians no on circumcision. That's clear. Because if we say yes to that, we're going to butcher the gospel. We're going to betray gospel purity, you see. But look, is there room to give in elsewhere? (laughs) Might there be other customs and traditions of this culture that you can just, just give in to, all right? Why? So that we can protect gospel unity. You got to do both. You got to balance the both. Is it actually sinful to eat medium rare steak? No, it's not. At least I have not seen in the Bible where it's actually sinful to do that. Is it sinful to eat food that was once presented to idols? No, it's not. Paul himself said it's okay in 1 Corinthians. Is it wrong to eat chicken meat from a chicken that like got strangled on a wire or something? No, it's fine to do that. But look, if you're going to maintain gospel purity and draw the line on circumcision, which you should, might there be room to give in on other things? You see, they're faithful to the gospel. Faithful, right? In that they said no to circumcision, but yet they were creative as they gave in to other things that didn't cross gospel boundaries. You've heard of IQ, intelligent quotient. You've heard of EQ. EQ. Emotional quotient. Here's another uh, abbreviation that I thought I came up with, but then I Googled it, and it's been out there for a while. I'm just late to the game. (laughs) CQ, cultural quotient. These leaders in the early church had high CQ. They knew that in order to keep gospel purity... They must say no to certain things, but they were able also to identify other important things in that culture which they can give in to without hurting gospel purity. And here's what's interesting. Look at verse 28. Who did the solution seem good to? Not just the leaders. Verse 28 says, for it had seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden than these requirements. Is it a stretch to say that possessing high CQ? and knowing how to navigate between gospel and culture well is a result of attunedness to the Holy Spirit. Is that a stretch to say? I don't know. The text seems to imply it. Don't submit to that, but let's give in to some of these things. It's okay, the early church leaders said. Just give in. But then aren't I still giving up some of my rights? These non-Jewish Christians might have asked. Why do I have to give up eating medium rare steak, you know, just to appease these people's legalistic cultural sensibilities? Let me express my Christian freedom. <laughs> okay, but at what cost? At what cost? You got to do a cost-benefit analysis here. Which freedoms to express how, at what cost? <laughs> oh, but that's too much work to think through all that. It is. It is. It is. And that's why I said earlier, the solution here wasn't just faithfully creative, it was also humbly sacrificial. Are you willing to do the hard work of laying down certain Christian freedoms you do have for the sake of gospel unity? Are there certain meats here in our culture that you do have the freedom to eat? But when certain people you're eating with may find that offensive, Just don't. (laughs) Are there certain drinks here in this culture that you're biblically allowed to drink? Reasonably. But when there's certain people around, maybe just don't. It's not a big deal. I've been invited to preach at churches where I have to wear a robe. And I've been invited to churches where where most of the people there wore skinny, ripped jeans. I preferably... Lean to neither, but just give in. Just wear that robe. It's fine. So I bought a pair of skinny rib jeans. I I didn't. I didn't do that. I can't pull it off. Look, maybe wrestling through that tension of which cultural things you got to say no to and which ones you can be okay, give in to, maybe struggling through that just maybe, those are moments of God's training grounds to grow you in both doctrinal sturdiness and also in humble personality. And maybe that's what Christ was like, both and. And maybe, well, not maybe. I know this one for sure. I'm pretty convinced that that's the kind of Christians the church needs today. Christ-like Christians with theological backbone, but who aren't narrow-minded. Christ-like Christians who will lay down their lives for gospel truth, but doesn't demonize everything about the culture they're in. That's what the early church leaders were like. And look, these kinds of Christians, look at what they produce, joy and unity. Look at verse 31 says the people rejoiced because of the encouragement, you see, joy. And look at verse 33. These uncircumcised non-Jewish Christians were called brothers. Unity, joy and unity. Is that not what we want? Is that not what glorifies Christ? All right, let's summarize before we move on to our last point. If we, CCC, if you as individual Christians... Want to be a church, want to be a Christian that's full of joy and marked by unity, and faithful to the gospel. First, appreciate the deep sensitivities that surround these issues. They're not just academic ones, they're often personal, emotional, cultural, existential, so handle it with care. Second, know when to stand firm and know when to give in. That's what God's telling us from this passage. And it'd be nice if the story ended there, right? We found the solution. Let's write a book on it and all will be well. But unfortunately, the story continued. Let's move on to our last point. We got to figure out how to remain as family even though we're separated institutionally. Look at the last part of the passage, verse 36 to 41. What do you see there? You see Paul and Barnabas, the two Christian leaders who led the early church in this process of finding a faithful, sensitive High CQ, humble, gospel-centered solution. Getting into a fight. (laughs) They fought and split up. It's like the second we thought we had the answer, right? The second we thought everything will be well, it wasn't. We found out there's no magic answer. Sin just runs too deep, even for Paul and Barnabas. What happened to them? Look at verse 36, 37. After this whole process is over... They wanted to continue in their mission, right, to preach the gospel. Barnabas wanted to take this guy named John Mark with them. But Paul, in verse 38, didn't want to do that, okay? Why? Because a few chapters ago, when Paul and Barnabas were persecuted almost to death for preaching Christ, this guy, John Mark, abandoned them. So Paul's thinking, he's unreliable. I can't take him on these dangerous trips anymore for both my sake and his. If he can't cut it, don't come. But Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. So in verse 39, it says, a sharp disagreement happened between them. And the word sharp disagreement in the Greek literally translates to provocation. There was provocation between Paul and Barnabas. And you know where else in the New Testament Paul was described to be provoked with the same Greek phrase? It's when he saw false idol worship in Acts chapter 17. Think about what the book of Acts is trying to say. This argument between Paul and Barnabas was so intense that Paul was described having felt in his body a similar, if not the same level of intensity, than when he was angered by idol worship. You've ever felt that when you're arguing with someone? These are two of the top five leaders in the early church. They fought in split ways. See, the Bible is a realistic document. It doesn't hide the sins of its heroes. And the God of the Bible is a realistic God. It's just hard. In any relationship on earth, not just in church, in any relationship, people have blind spots. We all have pre-commitments to things. We all have our own agendas. It's hard to see eye to eye sometimes on things. Like on this case, you might not know this, but in Colossians chapter 4, we're told that John Mark was actually Barnabas' cousin. And you're like, oh, that's why he was so gun ho about taking him. So, you know, Paul was right to be anxious about not taking John Mark because he left him to die last time they were persecuted. But Barnabas was John Mark's cousin. Of course, Barnabas would feel more empathy toward John, Mark, toward John Mark's failures. They're family. It's like when someone sees my kid act up in public, they'll probably go, oh, my goodness, what a mess. I think. And I'd go, yeah, but they're my mess. They're my mess, you know? Family, what do you do with family? <laughs> As much of a mess they are, they're our mess. So do we ask Paul to risk his life and take an incompetent person on the trip? Or do we ask Barnabas to abandon his family member? I don't know. It's complicated. <laughs> so they fought and they split ways. But here's what I want to point out, that even though they got into this heated argument and split ways, they protected gospel unity still. Look at verse 39 to 40. It says, Barnabas took Mark to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas to Syria and Sicilia. But as they split into their own ministries, look at what the end of verse 40 says, they were both commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. They were both commended by the brothers. This means somehow they didn't let this process get out of hand. They weren't backstabbing one another. They weren't creating factions in the church to where, you know, I'm my team and your team. No. They were commended by the church as a split way. Somehow they found a way to sharply disagree and talk about their differences and even went their separate ways because of it institutionally, but yet they did it without letting their egos get in the way to where it hurt and divided the church at large. Barnabas went his own way, and so did Paul. You see, just because different Christian institutions and churches and ministries and denominations, what have you, do their own thing in their own way, of course, given that they're not preaching total heresy, okay? We got to find out to stay family. How do we stay family? How do we not let our egos get in the way of gospel unity? You see, our problem is not that we have differences. We've always had differences. This is Acts chapter 15. Even Paul and Barnabas did. And these differences will continue till Christ comes again. Our problem is that our egos keep getting in the way. They keep intensifying the problem, and we break up. We need a solution to our ego. And let me end with this. You know what's stronger than our ego, especially men. We have big egos, but they're fragile, aren't they? They shatter easy. I know because mine does. How do we stop it from getting in the way? What can subvert ego? I want to propose love. Love can stop egos on its track. What do I mean? Let me ask you. If you're here today and you're married or you're dating somebody, when do you feel most at peace and willing to lay down your rights and your egos for that person? Is it when they're manipulating you? Is it when you feel like they're coercing you? Is it when they're threatening you? No. You feel most willing to lay down your ego and your pride and your rights when you're feeling affection toward them when you're in love with them. Paul and Barnabas had something they loved more than their own ego to where it helped them disagree in such a way that it didn't destroy the church's unity and mission at large. What was it? A love for Jesus. Their love for Jesus made them reel in their egos, their love for Jesus made them not let their internal conflict split church unity. By the way, if the level of love and affection you have for somebody directly correlates to how much you're willing to lay down your ego for them, you know what Paul and Barnabas witnessed at the cross? You know what they saw? They witnessed Jesus laying down his ego for them. Not only as a man, But as God incarnate, what happened to him? He was stripped naked. He was teased. He was treated unfairly. He was robbed from. He was judged unjustly. And he was humiliated in a way that would be despicable even for a criminal. You know, Roman citizens back then wouldn't even say the word cross from their mouths because even the word itself is humiliating to say but yet your God climbed on one for you. He laid down his rights and he put his ego to rest so that your sins may be forgiven. That's what Paul and Barnabas saw on the cross. And it made them love Jesus more than their own egos. The affection Paul and Barnabas had for Christ stopped their egos on its track and made them willing to do the hard work of emotional self-regulation at that moment when the rubber meets the road. You know what that moment I'm talking about? When you just lose it. It made it reel it in. Their love for Jesus restrained them, compelled them. CCC. If we want to be a kind of church... That represents the gospel powerfully in the city. You gotta walk that complicated thin line that lies between gospel purity and gospel unity. Put your foot down when necessary and take on whatever insults this world has to give you for following Christ. But at the same time, have high CQ. Know when, what, and how to give in for the sake of gospel unity. Protect the truth but let the cross dictate your words, not your ego. And one day, he'll come again and we'll all be as one. But until that day comes, I urge you to endure this tension for the sake of not only our joint peace and for the sake of this church, but ultimately for the sake of your king who laid down all he had to save you. He's worth it. Do it for him. Let's pray. Father, even today as we installed new members to this church, our heart is full and joyful as we grow in numbers. But there's also a sense of anxiety that dwells in all of us, knowing that it's going to take more work, to navigate and maintain unity is going to take more gospel patience, more forgiving, more laying down of rights because there's just more people to rub shoulders with and um, more sinners uh, as a part of this church because we're all sinners here. I pray, Father, that You would help us navigate through that tension and not fall into heresy nor division. And as we do so, let your cross shine forth and let the city see a group of people who are stumbling along the way, trying their best to glorify their King and having the cross restrain and compel them to love one another in a way that glorifies you. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.